This is Wealth Curve Talk with John L. Smallwood, certified financial planner and president of Smallwood Wealth Management. With more than 30 years of experience in helping people with wealth management, financial planning, business ownership, estate planning, insurance, and more, John's here to share the news you can use to improve your financial confidence. Now, best-selling author and six-time five-star wealth manager award winner, John L. Smallwood. Hello, this is John Smallwood, Senior Wealth Advisor at Smallwood Wealth Management, located in Red Bank, New Jersey. I want to welcome everybody again to the podcast. I truly appreciate everybody being on. The subscribers are growing and the content is growing and it's a wonderful thing. As we get into the end of the year, we start to think about it, you know, people get uptight and they get nervous about tax planning, like they wasted the whole year. And we've been this constant conversation about tax planning begins right now. It begins yesterday, began six months ago. It's a constant conversation that you need to be focused on, okay? And every single year, I've been doing this for over 31 years, and every single year there's a whole bunch of stuff that's gonna come up that's gonna change this and change that, and some of it does and some of it doesn't, and some of it's not as bad as we thought it was gonna be. And at the end of the day, taxes are a constant moving target. The strategy that you put in play it's going to dictate how well you do in different timeframes. But it always requires rethinking, re-envisioning, refocusing, and getting very, very clear on how am I being impacted by this. So every single time that you think about it, you need to start with where am I in now? Tell the truth about where we are now. Things are good. Things are bad. Things are, it doesn't really matter. But what, what matters is where am I? And where is the financial pressure that I have on my plan? And financial pressure comes in various ways, but financial pressure is the way we like to think about it is you have positive pressure, which is you know positive markets and savings rate and accumulation and compounding of interest and compounding of wealth and stocks going up. That's all positive pressure on the curve asset appreciation, et cetera. Negatives on the curve or pressure pushing down on the curve is taxation, market volatility, which would be down market, you know, uh, inflation, all the things that we've been talking about. But I thought what would be really interesting is to kind of recycle an old document that we put out about a year, year and a half ago. It's on the website. It's called the 19 Sources of Retirement Income. But the document really plays into the setup of what's going on in my plan now what do I own currently? What is putting income on my tax return? How is it being taxed? And then what are the things that are coming in the future to my tax return that may not have arrived yet, such as pension income or social security or IRA distributions or 401k withdrawals? And when they begin to happen, what will be the impact of the strategy? Meaning, how will I be taxed? Will I be taxed at a higher bracket than I am today? Which, you know, we know the tax brackets will change. The question is, how will they change? And how big will they change? And what we're hearing at the moment that we're recording, this is not necessarily as bad as we all thought it was going to be the beginning of the calendar year when they started talking about it. But let's just break this down into a simple conversation about your plan. So if you start thinking about it, Let's go through the 19 sources. If you haven't downloaded the document, go to the website, download the document, 
put in your name, put in your email address. You'll be on our notifications. If you want to be off the notifications, you can unsubscribe to the messages. But you can get this document and go through it and basically make a list. And the first one on the list is Social Security. And Social Security is a very unique taxable tax treated income because as I sit here and I think about it, I may be ready for retirement. I may be fully retired and not collecting any income. I may be between the ages of 62 and 70, okay? Um, I may be significantly younger and I'm in the accumulation phase of what that social security is gonna do for me. And there's a lot of questions on that. But one of the things as self-employed people, we wanna make sure that that social security income that we are contributing to is we're contributing in a way that maximizes the benefit for not only for you, but for your spouse at the same time, okay? That's good business planning. But the reality is, if you're getting ready to retire or you're newly retired, receiving social security income is a very efficient, very easy thing. But to make this very clean, if you're getting $30,000 worth of social security income, you're not paying tax on the full $30,000. You're paying tax on about 85% of that once your income gets above about $50,000. Below that, your taxable income on that is very, very low. So if your taxable adjusted gross income from other sources is below 50,000, a lot of those social security benefits can be completely tax-free depending upon where you are. So you need to understand if I'm retired, should I start to take the social security rather than defer it out to 70, like a lot of people are telling us. And there's a, there's a bigger picture in that conversation. If I, let's say I'm retired today and I'm 62, and I'm, my plan is I wanna maximize my social security benefits and I'm gonna defer that from now on to age 70, my spouse may or may not do the same thing, okay? My spouse may take her benefit or his benefit, maybe half, you know, we gotta look at what that option is, but let's just assume that for a second. The normal social security benefit, if I defer it out to 70, you know, from 62 to 67 is growing by about six and a half percent a year. From 67 to 70, it's compounding by eight and a half percent a year. And that's the lure is to basically if you defer, you're gonna get more income in the future. But right now, let's say that I can get $2,500 a month from my reduced benefit at 62, that's $30,000 a year. That $30,000 a year over an eight year period is $240,000 worth of income. That $240,000 worth of income had to come from somewhere else if I didn't take it from Social Security, so therefore my accounts are lower in the future, my net wealth. I had to remove money from somewhere else. I had to take money from cash or IRA distributions. But if you look at this, the social security income, if I take that 30,000, depending upon my income from other sources, at worst, 85% of it's gonna be taxable, at worst. Meaning whatever my current bracket is, let's say that I'm married, filing joint return, and my income is between 19,000 and 81,000, that's gonna be taxed at the federal bracket in the current tax law at 12%. And only 85% of it's gonna be taxable. So that's extremely efficient source of income to take. But if I'm working still, 
that you have the earnings offset. So you would need to defer that out to 67. But you really need to look at in your plan, what is going on with the Social Security? When will I take it? How should I take it? When I take it, if I defer it, what, how does it impact my wealth and my future wealth and my additional capital that I need for other things such as uh, long-term care, et cetera? Now, in a pension, as the next source, number two, the pension income is going to be complete ordinary income. Depending upon where the pension was derived from, your state may follow you if you try to move out of the state, but that's a different conversation. But the reality is the pension income is going to be fully taxable. So if I got $30,000 of pension, that's completely taxable. And then it comes down to that tax on the pension income is going to basically you know, create that ordinary income payment, but you ha also have tremendous options when it comes to the pension. Should I take a lump sum? Should I take a life-only pension? Should I defer it from 62 to 65? In some cases, I may re be retiring at 55. I can elect the pension at 55, but if I wait to 62, I'm gonna get more money. There's a lot of little factors in there that you need to think about in the planning process, but one of those is, you know, is your pension considered to be a life-only option? Like if you are part of certain unions, teachers' unions in the state of New Jersey, until you elect your pension benefit, it's considered life-only. Well, what the heck does that mean? Well, if I die yesterday, my family gets nothing in the pension, even if I put in the full 26 or 27 years. You have to check your pension and the resources there, but that's going to be fully taxable. So when I start thinking about the future and I start taking in pensions, whatever that pension is going to be, it's going to put me up to a certain threshold. So when I pull in my social security income and income from IRAs, these are all going to be taxed as ordinary income, but the social security being the most favorable. Now, interest income is number three on the list, right? So, you know, everybody laughs when I say it now, but years ago, interest was a big deal. Like you could have a million bucks in the bank and you could get 17% interest and pay tax on $170,000, right? So that's 1981, 1982, it's been a long time. But the reality is right now, that interest income is gonna be taxed as ordinary income, okay? So that whatever your bracket, again, if you're, bracket is you're at married filing joint with adjusted gross income below 81,000, you're in a 12% bracket. If you cross above the 81,000, maybe the interest pushes you above that, all that money is getting taxed in the next bracket, which is 22%. All right, so you have to, one of the things I want you to realize is that when you're doing deductions, deferrals, 401ks, et cetera, the deductions occur in the marginal tax bracket. So if my last dollars are being taxed in the 22% bracket, the deductions are worth 22%. If I'm deferring or receiving income, the marginal bracket is where you, know, you have an effective bracket, which is in essence like average, but then you have this marginal bracket, where are my last dollars being taxed? So if I'm, if I'm you know, married, filing joint, earning over 172,000, and I have dividends, non-qualified, and I have interest that's coming off, that, that's all being taxed at 24%, then that's above that $172,000 mark. So the dividends, the interest is taxed that way, 
you have ordinary dividends that are coming from different types of bonds and certain stocks that are being taxed as regular ordinary income. And then you have qualified dividends that are being taxed like capital gain rates. So it's very important to understand the distinction of do I are my dividends ordinary dividends or are they qualified? If they're qualified, that you're getting taxed like capital gain income. So if again, if your income is you know zero to eighty thousand, capital gains are zero percent. Uh, eighty to five hundred and one thousand is fifteen percent. Um, in the new tax law, they're talking about maybe moving that to twenty five, but that seems like that's not even going to be a conversation at this point, based on information that I have as we're having this conversation. But that qualified dividend is something that's very valuable because the capital gain rate is far superior to that as the ordinary income rate. Tax-free dividends, such as municipal bond interest, okay, you can also consider that to be life insurance dividends. That comes up in number seven also. But those are considered to be tax-free and they're not hitting your adjusted gross income or being what we call a preference item. So. You have to understand what the equivalent return is. So for example, if I had a dividend on a municipal bond that was earning 3% and I'm in the 40% tax bracket, how does that compare to what I'm earning on something that's fully taxable? Do I have an arbitrage there? Can I make more money? So capital gain income is really important also because you have different things that are going on within your funds that you own, the mutual funds, the ETFs, the stock portfolios, the stock managers. So what you have is, when you think about your portfolio, taxable, there's dividends and interest, ordinary income, there's qualified dividends, then there's realized capital gain. So if I realize a capital gain on my portfolio, even if, if I reinvest that capital, okay, that reinvestment of the capital, is going to be, uh, still gonna be taxed at whatever the capital gain rate, which could be somewhere between zero, 15, and 20%, plus, you know, since you're state level tax and potentially a Medicare tax of 3.8%. So when you're looking at your strategy, it's very important to understand the more tax I pay during the accumulation phase on my non-qualified assets, the less wealth I'll have. So you want your strategy be tax efficient that minimizes the impact of those realized capital gains. There is some new tax law that's out there that was invented or created in the 2017, which is called opportunity zone investing. And that opportunity zone investing, you can potentially defer realized gains on stock sales into an opportunity zone. By 2026, you have to pay tax on the money that you put into the opportunity zone, but if it sits there for the full time frame, let's say you had a $100,000 gain, if it sits there for the full five years, instead of paying tax on 100,000, you could pay tax on 80,000. And at 80,000, if your adjusted gross income was below 80,000, you're, you know, you're in a very low tax bracket, okay? Um, what's interesting is the money that gets into the opportunity zone the gains on that after year five are completely tax-free. That's the value of what's called the opportunity zone investing. These are things that are, you need to be aware that they exist and how they will impact you, but it, it is really interesting from that standpoint. 
But again, when you're thinking about, hey, I have a stock portfolio, I'm actively trading it, I'm generating dividends, but I'm also generating capital gains. And those capital gains can be short-term capital gains. Short-term capital gains are taxed as ordinary income. Long-term capital gains, assets that are held at greater than, let's say, 13 months, right? Those that are there are considered long-term capital gains. So you need to understand in the portfolio that you own, how is it being taxed? What kind of tax is it putting back on your plan? And is my tax strategy appropriate for my position? And is the investment decision to buy and sell something appropriate for my strategy? Over the years, we've had multiple people come in and the returns are decent, but they're paying a lot of tax because the manager is buying and selling, buying and selling, buying and selling. And it's generating a lot of taxable income, which if it's short term and you're in a high tax bracket, that could be quite painful, right? It could be if you generate $100,000 of you know, short term capital gains, you're talking about 37% you know, plus the state level tax. You'd be talking about a $40,000 tax bill that's tied up in investment. So now you gotta take it from cash or somewhere else. That's not an efficient way to do things. Number nine, business income. Business income is probably one of the best areas right now in the tax law with the 199A qualified business income deductions, which I'm gonna focus on it from the standpoint of pass-through entities, Schedule C, sole proprietorship, Schedule C, uh, LLC, tax like a partnership, a partnership, an S corporation, an LLC, tax like an S corporation, all can benefit from qualified business income deductions, which are basically two categories, right? You can deduct up to 20% of your business income. So let's say I had $100,000 of business income, instead of paying tax on 100 at 37%, you're paying tax on 80 at the same 37% tax rate. So it's a way to, that they were equalizing the rate to try to get it down to the corporate tax rate, which is in C corporations, retained earnings is gonna be like a, you know, like a 21%. And that's in essence what they were trying to do with that. The way the qualified business income deduction works is it's the deductibility is 50% of your W-2 wages for the firm or 20%, whichever one is less, okay? so organizing your business, paying yourself and your employees in the right methodology is gonna dictate how that business income can impact. But as long as this thing is here, you really wanna maximize the qualified business income. And this is something that I see missed by a lot of people is they have paid themselves in certain ways by owning their own business that they actually increase the amount of tax that they're paying when the tax law clearly defines that you can actually, you know, utilize this qualified business income. The royalty income, which is the next section on here, is interesting. Depending upon how the royalties are being derived, there are certain, you know, deductions and depletion and other things that can be done. And it can also be benefiting potentially from capital gain income. Partnership income, you know, not necessarily what we were talking about earlier, um, but with business owners, as far as a partnership, but you can be investing in a partnership that owns, you know, natural resources, it owns real estate, it owns different things that benefits them from depreciation and depletion, um, and things to that nature. But you got to understand where that is. Rental real estate income, 
not only has the benefit of the depreciation, but it also potentially has the benefit of uh, the qualified business income structured properly. So when you're planning and you're thinking about this, right? I know I'm going through a lot of this, but if you don't know where your current plan is and how your money's being taxed, how can you look at alternatives, right? How can you look at something and say, well, that's a good deal or a bad deal? Well, it's a good deal if I lower my taxes, I lower my risk, I increase my income, lower my fees and costs, increase my savings rate, accumulate more wealth, have more benefits and more protection, and pass more to my family. Those are the, like the seven caveats that I'm always trying to get to. One of the interesting things is we've been talking a lot about inflation, right? And for the last 25, 30 years, I've been talking about certain strategies in play that I may or may not use in the future when I am retired. And one of those is the concept of a, of a reverse mortgage. What happens is we're running into a high inflationary rate, right? We just saw, you know, in November, the year over year is over 6% for inflation, the highest it's been in 30 years. Well, if I own my own home and I'm thinking about maybe downsizing, that's not that great of a deal right now because the conversation that I'm seeing is everything's so darn expensive, all right? I want to stay close to my kids. I don't want to move away. There's a lot of things, right? So just think through that for a second. But if I turn on reverse mortgage income, let's say I had a house that was worth 400000 there's a couple different styles of reverse mortgages, but the income from the reverse mortgage is completely tax-free, okay? So... It is a, it's like a refinance. It is completely tax-free income. So let's say I had a house, I'm 70 years old, the house is worth 400. You and your spouse can get lifetime joint income, maybe $24,000 a year. That is powerful and could serve as an inflationary hedge because that income is not being taxed. And it's not, you know, we had the benefit over the last 12 months of the stock market going up nicely. So that's an inflation hedge there but we could be in the future and having these sideways markets or declining markets and the, the reverse mortgage serves as a beautiful inflationary hedge, but it also, in a rising tax environment, that income is worth more than a lot of other sources, okay? And allow you to hang on to other monies from other area. On our document, we have different types of strategies here. 14 and 15 is immediate annuity income versus annuity income. So there's, couple different tax nuances in the annuity law that makes a lot of sense for potential investors, which is there's an annuity exclusion ratio. Different products, different strategies allow you to unlock that. But in a simple methodology, if I put $100,000 in an annuity and the account made 3%, $3,000, and I pulled out the $3,000, that would be taxable income as ordinary income. If I annuitize that contract, and let's say that I do it over a 10-year period, and I'm going to basically, let's say I'm gonna get $13,000 a year for the next 10 years from the insurance company, 10,000 of that comes back to me, and that is return to principal, that's excluded from taxation, that's the annuity exclusion rule, and then only the 3,000 is taxable as interest. So it's a, an efficient manner to do that, if I have an annuity that is market-driven or fixed or index-linked or something to that nature, one of those types of products, and the account is zero, and I pull out you know four or five thousand dollars under the income guarantee, and I'm below my basis, that could be tax-free uh, during that time frame. 
If the account goes to zero, that income in the future would be taxable as ordinary income. But that could give you significant increases in income because you're not paying, you're paying tax on your principal. You're not paying tax on your principal. You're basically getting tax-free income. There are ways to annuitize a contract um, where you maintain the equity, but your value, but you're still getting that exclusion ratio. All annuity income that comes from an IRA will be taxed as IRA, okay, which IRAs are taxed as ordinary income. So as we sit down and we talk about this, right, what we're seeing a lot of people do over the last 10, 15, 20, 30 years of doing this is when they retire, they defer their Social Security, so they lose that tax benefit of tax-free income potentially, they defer their IRAs to 70 or 70 and a half, which it was now it's 72. Secure Act 2.0 might actually allow you to defer it even further. And they burn up their cash and they defer everything. And then they get out to, you know, 70, 72. They start, they get hit with the required minimum distributions from the IRAs and they turn on their Social Security. And now they're paying a lot more taxes and they miss that 10-year donut, basically, or that 10-year, you know, lower income where they could get out, they can either do Roth conversions or they can do things that are basically more tax efficient during that time frame. But that's one of the things that we're seeing that's super important is you don't necessarily want to defer the qualified IRA distributions to 72 depending upon where your income sources are now and what you're doing. You may want to actually get it out now, pay the tax, and reposition that. It might be a better strategy in the long run. In the tax law, you have Roth, okay, which is a the difference between an IRA and a Roth IRA is one is a pre-tax contribution, meaning the IRA don't pay any tax. It grows without taxation, and when I take it out, it's going to be taxable. The Roth is different, so you have Roth, where the money goes in post-tax, already paid tax, it grows without taxation, and when I pull it out, it's completely tax-free. So there's certain limitations and caps on Roth IRAs, but everybody in the current moment, if they participated in a 401k plan, most 401k plans have a 401 Roth option, and people can contribute to the Roth, 401 Roth, in lieu of or some combination thereof, what let's say you're over 50, you can put 26,000 into the 401k or 26,000 in the 401 Roth or some combination there of 12 and 12, you know, 13 and 13, whatever it is, right? So the idea, the benefit is pay the tax now, get the tax-free compounding, and then pull the money out tax-free in retirement. And I'm a big fan of having both sources, right? Because I don't know the year in which I retire, what those taxes will be, and I want to have some tax control, okay? There's a common misconception is because you're a high earner, I'm, you know, you make over $200,000 a year that you don't qualify for a 401 Roth, and the answer is you can make $10 million a year. You can, there is no cap. You can make as much money as you want and still contribute to a 401k or 401 Roth if your 401k plan allows for that. A important strategy in principal paydowns, which is a really interesting concept, like an annuity, but it's self, self-controlled. Like there are periods when we're going to be looking at high tax rates, and it's extremely efficient rather than just taking the interest off of something, actually 
re, you know, each year taking a portion of principal, so the interest is declining. If you visualize that for a second, let's say I have $100,000 that's earning 6%, which question is where, is where is that today? But let's just use that example. That's $6,000 a year of income that you're paying tax on. If you leave the 100,000 there and you make 6% for the next 20 years, you're getting yeah, $6,000 a year and it's inflation's beating down on you and it's taxable and you're paying full tax on that. If I had the same 6% investment and I said, let's go take that $100,000, put it in the 6% investment, but I'm gonna spend it down over the next 20 years, interest and principal, that's going to allow me to pull out $8,700. Each year, a portion of that's going to be more and more and more of that will be principal. So the net after tax income is going up every single year. That's a true way to increase the after tax efficiency and have an inflation hedge by hitting principal if you can. And then a very popular strategy, but often not implemented, is the concept of a charitable remainder trust. Okay, where you can generate income from making a charitable contribution to something. So people that have highly appreciated stock can actually gift their highly appreciated stock to a charitable remainder trust. Depending upon your age and how old you are, you're going to get a big deduction for that. And in turn, you'll get lifetime income from the gross asset before the sale. And there's multiple ways to start thinking through this, but the idea is that how do these things work? Where am I today? Meaning, I just went through 19 sources of retirement income. How many of these sources do you have? How many will you have that you don't currently have? Should you have them? Should you be exploring them? Should you be building wealth in those areas so you can take advantage of those in the future? And how much tax am I currently paying on my accumulated wealth today? And should I reposition that? Should I take advantage of tax reduction strategies today? Should I take advantage of deferral strategies that I may or may not be taking advantage of? Should I be paying tax and getting money into Roths? This goes to a much bigger conversation, which is how do I maximize the current deductions that are available? Mortgage interest, the SALT deduction, uh, charitable contributions currently. Am I retired taking RMDs? Can I make a charitable contribution from the IRA before the RMD is calculated so that I have less RMD, which is a ripple effect through other things in my plan? Maybe I pay less Medicare, you know, portion, you know, my premiums less on, on all those things. There's so many things that can be done to make this really worthwhile and beneficial to what you're doing. So I want to as I wrap this up, I want you to download the document, take a look at your tax return, see what's showing up on the tax return, which lines that they're on, and get a good assessment of where you are. One of the things that we do in the planning process is we we will go through that and understand what are things that you can do to not only reduce the current taxation, but reduce the tax moving forward so that you continually, your strategy is one that is not compounding taxes, it's maybe maintaining the taxes level, which over a long period of time, that can be very beneficial. You have to look at the big picture on these things. But you're welcome to schedule a catch-up call if you're an existing client and we can review your taxes. And you're also welcome to schedule a wealth curve 
conversation, which is a free, no obligation introductory call where we're going to ask you a lot of questions. Tell me about yourself, your family, your income, you know, your goals, your dreams. Then you ask us a bunch of questions and we see if we're a good fit. Pretty simple process. Thank you for today. Subscribe to the podcast, share the podcast. And if you have any ideas or comments that we can make this more compelling, more beneficial, hit a topic that we haven't hit. We are here to do that. Thank you. It's your wealth. Keep it. The best-selling book by John L. Smallwood, the definitive guide to growing, protecting, enjoying, and passing on your wealth. Find it on Amazon now or go to smallwoodwealth.com for more retirement resources. Wealth Curve Talk with John L. Smallwood is brought to you by Smallwood Wealth Management, an investment advisor representative. Strategies mentioned may not be suitable for everyone, and the information expressed does not take into account your specific situation or objectives and is not intended as recommendations appropriate for you. Information has been obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Always consult with a qualified investment, legal, or tax professional before taking any action as information and or opinion are subject to change without notice. Investments involve risk and unless otherwise stated are not guaranteed. Past performance cannot be used as an indicator to determine future results. Smallwood Wealth Management provides content that is true and accurate as of the date of publishing. However, we give no assurance or warranty regarding the accuracy, timeliness, or applicability of any of the contents. We assume no responsibility for information contained on this website or podcast and disclaim all liability in respect of such information, including but not limited to any liability for errors, inaccuracies, omissions, misleading, or defamatory statements. 